text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 4, 1 through verse 16. This also is God's holy word. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? In he who descended is the one also who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. We come to you, Father Almighty God. We acknowledge, Father, that we are sinful, that we're in need of your spirit, that we're in need of uh, the work of illumination for our lives. Father, we pray that we would be those who not only delight and study and teach good doctrine, but Father, we pray that we would also be those who live lives that are upright and pleasing to you. Father, we pray that we would live worthy of the calling that we have received in Jesus Christ, that we would have hearts and lives surrendered to you, that we would desire that our attitudes, our speech, and our actions would adorn the gospel that we believe, that Jesus Christ indeed is risen, that he is the one uh, who conquers all of his and our enemies, and that he is subduing us to himself. Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ uh, in a saving way, we pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to do that mighty work of transformation. We pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power this day from every pulpit in our land. We pray, Father, that your, serv your servant would be humbled, but that our Lord Jesus would be high and exalted. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, 
here as we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we come to kind of the the midpoint, the transition in the letter. Uh, We see that in all of Paul's letters and most of the general epistles in the New Testament, we have such a transition. So in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, we have what was called the theory or what was called the the indicatives. This is what God has done on behalf of sinners. You think about the chapter 1 of Ephesians speaking about the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they were all active in the plan of salvation. Then you think about Ephesians 2, how he speaks about how we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, in his mercy, made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. We think also about how we came to know this. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 speaks about his stewardship of the gospel, that he proclaimed the good news. When we think about the Ephesians, we think about uh, Acts chapter 20, and you can, you can almost hear the shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, meaning that the city of Ephesus was known for the worship of idols of, of Artemis. You think also about those uh, who, who had these spell books, right? We, we hear about the spell books being mentioned, that those who were idolaters, that they, they were into the occult, they were into a sorcery, a witchcraft, and when they burned these books, and before they did, they summed them up, and they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Keep in mind that one piece of silver was, was roughly the, the wage of a, of, of a person to work a day's uh, labor. So 50,000 pieces of silver. But you see here that uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing these Ephesians, he had a greater hope for them. That there was a better life for them in the calling of Jesus Christ. That he was calling them to a better life. That when we think about God's work in your life and in mine, He never calls us to a life of misery. We may consider it misery because we have to give up certain things, but that was never God's design. He always calls us to a better life, a higher life. Here, when we think about the transition then from what God has done on your behalf, then we come to this passage, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when he begins to speak about how you and I are called to live this new life. Not only to believe certain things, but that we would treasure, that we would live them, that we would obey our Lord Jesus. So the truth that we see here, your high calling by Christ summons you to new life marked by all humility and love. Your high calling by Christ summons you to new life marked by all humility and love. We'll look at this in two points. The first, the exhortation to your worthy life in Christ. And second, the description of your worthy life in Christ in verse 2. So the first point, the exhortation to your worthy life in Christ. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here, we think about this transition that happens, that God was speaking about the saving work through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this repeated image of walking that... uh, We have in various scriptures, especially in this book of Ephesians, the the image of walking. Ephesians 2, 1, uh, that you once walked following the course of this world. 
Then Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. Here in this passage, Ephesians 4.1, that he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4.17, walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of the light. Here we think about why he uses this, this imagery of walking. And it's because we're told that you can tell a lot about a person by their walk. I once saw a doctor back when I lived in California. He was, uh, he was not an allopathic doctor. He was of an Eastern mindset. But this man, part of his diagnosis, he closes his eyes and he has you walk in front of him. And uh, here I'm wondering, what is he doing? But then again, he's the doctor, I'm not. And I say, all I hear are my keys jingling in my pocket. And he had to remind me that, young man, don't forget, I'm the doctor, you're not. What he was doing is he was actually listening for things. And it wasn't the keys he was concerned about. Uh, he, he perhaps uh, could tell, the, he, he could always already hear the things that were wrong, perhaps in the joints. Right here, we think about the walk. When... When animals, predators, pursue their prey, one of the things that predators do, like wolves, they will put the herd to chase. They will start to get them to run. And so to say, as they go about running, they're, they're quick to spot weaknesses, right? You can see that something is out of joint when they begin to walk, when they begin to run. Here, we think about how the scriptures speak about how a fool is a fool shows himself to be a fool even by the way in which he walks on the road, right? If he walks in the middle of the road, then we would say, well, this person sooner or later will be run over. And so also you think about how God has called us to walk in certain ways. We're to walk in the light, not in the darkness. Those who walk in darkness will stumble and fall. Here, we think about how this calling you and I have received. We uh, read earlier from... The, uh, the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, regarding effectual calling. That our Lord Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that he calls us to new life. And it's effectual, meaning it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. He renews our wills. He enlightens our minds. He helps us intellectually to see that his ways are far better than our ways. That he transforms our wills so that we surrender to him. Here we think about how in this passage then, besides all the theory that came before, we're coming to the practice. We're coming to where the rubber meets the road. And it's no longer just in theory, but it is in practice that we would begin living as our Lord Jesus did, walking in the same manner as he walked. Here, the Apostle Paul uh, mentions something about himself. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So it's a reminder about himself. Here, the Apostle Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians from a Roman prison. The, est the estimated time was sometime 61, 62 AD. But notice he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Caesar. He says that he's a prisoner for the Lord. Meaning that he, he looks at the higher level. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't consider, hey, who put me in this prison? Well, whose mandate was it? 
And he says, hey, well, the higher, the, the higher view is that our God is so, sovereign over everything. And he says here that he's prisoner for the Lord. If it wasn't for the fact that he was proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wouldn't be a pr in prison at all. He doesn't blame it on Caesar. He thinks about this in terms of the Lord's doing and his witness for Christ. Now, regarding the matter of chains, you, you can think about how, as a prisoner for the Lord, he would have been in chains. And in a Roman prison, not only would he be behind bars, he would have shackles on. And he mentioned earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So there, earlier, he addressed this matter uh, about chains, about his suffering. He is a bit concerned. Wait a minute. I am concerned that, that uh, here you see me suffering, right? You see me enchained. And uh, he's wondering, hey, are, are you not going to be able to see past this? But you realize that there's all kinds of oddities as the gospel goes forward. He says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians, the foolishness of the message preached will save those who believe. Right? Meaning that the gospel message is foolishness. Hey, wait a minute. W would you want a message where someone tells you, hey, you're under condemnation. And it's a condemnation that you cannot remove yourself from. That this bad news is so horrendously bad that you can't fix it. And the only hope that you have is to trust in someone else. Who would believe such a message? Only he or she whose heart has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Here, it's a question not of if about chains, it's a question of what. So here, the Apostle Paul, as a prisoner, he's in chains. And he's realizing, you know what? God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God uses such people who are shackled, because here, if someone, someone's going to say, wait a minute, if I'm going to believe what you believe, doesn't that mean that I'm going to be behind those bars like you? That I'm going to be shackled like you? It's not a question of if, it's a question of what. Here, you think about what the gospel does. The gospel is good news to sinners because it promises true freedom. True freedom from sin, from misery, from eternal destruction. Have you ever met someone who is enslaved to his sins? They cannot free themselves. They're unable to. You mentioned something as small as, hey, can I propose a slight change? No, it can't be done. Right? Unable to do it. Unwilling to do it. Both unwilling and unable. Who alone frees a person from those shackles? It is Jesus Christ alone who frees them from those shackles. And we ought to think, whatever temporary shackles, external shackles there are, those are completely immaterial to, to the, the spiritual bondage that we have to our sins, which leads to misery and will eventually lead to our eternal destruction. Part of Seeing the light, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is he allows us to see the eternal and the temporary and the importance of the eternal. We are able to see past our own noses. That's one of the signs that someone is redeemed, is that they're able to see past themselves. They're able to see the bigger picture. Here, we think also of this matter of exhortation. 
elsewhere in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul now says, hey, I could come to you commanding you, right? I could come to you requiring, he, he has the authority of the Apostle, you shall do this. We notice the words here, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here, this idea of exhortation or urging. Some say it's probably better translated, he begs them. He implores them. And you ask, why is he begging them? He makes himself look like a beggar. What are you? What am I? Are we not beggars before our God? Are we not fully dependent upon him in every way? You think about this message, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here, you think about the work of an ambassador. Part of the ambassador's job is that he's supposed to represent not himself, but the one who sent him. Meaning that here, if he's representing our God, our God is actually... On one hand, he's, he's commanding us to repent and believe, but he's actually begging us that we might be reconciled to him. You realize that? that this, is, this is our God humbling himself. He humbled himself in sending his son. He humbled himself in that the free offer of the gospel is he begs us that we would believe upon him. Otherwise, judgment will come. That God in his humility is one who begs us that we would receive this good news, that we would believe upon it, that we would trust in him. We think also about the need for this exhortation. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here, this concept of worthy, the concept of worthy is a concept that describes a certain balance and weight it's important to have balances in life. And here, in this transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, from the, the, this is what God has done for you, to this then is how you ought to live, it's important for us to have balances in life. Here, we ought to understand the pitfalls of a lopsided Christian life. Some people could happily live all their lives in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. They love doctrine. And perhaps the practice is where things start to fall apart. And we ask, well, what does that result in? It results in some sort of dead orthodoxy. And as James would say, it results in a dead faith. There's, there's no life in that. We're not called to do it. Here, you look at the other extreme, where there's a, a complete ignoring of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and a focus on Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, where there's entirely a, you know, you have to do this, you have to uh, follow these rules, you, you have to help others, and, and perhaps it might be well intended. But the end result of this lopsidedness is that there would be a humanitarian, there would be a humanist. Uh, eventually, the person would be an animal lover, and then a tree hugger, right? You see the, these two lopsided imbalances, but you realize that the life worthy of the gospel is one who not only believes right doctrine, meaning we 
We live the right way, but we do it with the right motivation. Because you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your life is no longer your own. You've been set free by the Lord Jesus. Here, the goal of this exhortation then is not merely behavioral change. It's not so that uh, the outward aspects of you change, but rather that you would realize you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You've been set free. That the motive is in every way important. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ and that you and I might start living like it. Here, you think about how can we ever live a life that is fully worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no, we never could. But he calls us that our lives might begin to change. That even in this life, that there would be sanctification, that he would begin to set us apart. That we would have at least some type of a match between what we believe and who Jesus is and how, and how we walk. So this is the first point, the exhortation to your worthy life in Christ. We have the second point, the description of your worthy life in Christ. In verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here, I read the, the whole section down to chapter 4, verse 16, because the higher goal in this section is that of unity in Christ. There we see that in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he talks about a sevenfold unity in verses 4 through 6. And seven, seven being the perfect number for, for, uh, for the Jews. Seven is completeness. And, and here we see that the greater goal that the Apostle Paul is getting at in this passage is that of unity in Christ and its importance. But we look at these building blocks. In verse 2, he mentions four things. Unity cannot be possible if these building blocks are not present. He mentions humility, gentleness, patience, and, and forbearance in love, or bearing with one another in love. <coughs> Here, we begin with humility, or as we see in the Beatitudes, it is poverty in spirit. We ought to acknowledge that the world has no respect for the humble and the lowly. In the Greek culture, and keep in mind that in the Greek and Roman culture, that it was common for the majority of, of their society uh, to be enslaved, right? It wasn't, it wasn't abnormal, right? That the vast majority of people were enslaved. They weren't free. And there was clearly a, a marked demeanor difference between the free people and the slave people. And the Greeks had a great disdain for, for this humility because it marked that of someone who was not free. It was a sign of weakness and it was to them a sign of inferiority. If you, if you are anything in life, you will exert yourself and you will, you will push yourself to, to such a way in which you establish yourself above others. That's their philosophy. So if you're not doing it, then there's inferiority and weakness in you. You realize that there's a, there's a similar foolishness in our modern American culture. A modern American culture that glorifies outrage, right? It practices shaming and mocks weakness. This is, from a world's perspective, entirely contrary to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
So, so if, we're, if we're going to follow the ways of the world, then we're acknowledging this is completely different than our Lord. Here, you think about how humility comes to us as a result of knowing, of loving, and of worshiping Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus' offer. Matthew eleven twenty eight. the following. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, for those who are of the world, they hear about Jesus, how he was despised, how he was lowly, and they say, I want nothing of that. I want to be high, I want to be mighty, and I want to be feared. For the rest of the world, we would say, okay, well, I suppose he gets passed up. But you realize, for the rest of us, who have come to our own senses, who have been able to see our own failures and sins, we realize, no, wait a minute. What we need is mercy. What we need is gra- the grace of God. And Jesus is the one who freely offers it to us. When we think about August, Augustine's three most important Christian virtues, he says, they were humility, humility, and humility. And you might respond back, no, that's one virtue. Well, the point he's making is, it's so important, it's mentioned three times. We see even in what we read in the Old Testament, in Psalm 25, regarding this humility, verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Oftentimes, we're not learning because we're not realizing our lack of knowledge. We're not, we don't see what we're missing. And here, if we're humble enough to even ask the question, at times people don't want to know what they're missing. And it takes the mighty work of God so that we realize, I'm missing something. I'm missing something significant. This is the way that Jesus is, and I am completely opposite. And it takes humility. It takes the work of the Spirit for us even to ask the question, how am I not like Christ? What is Christ like that I might be like him? Then we come to the second description is that of gentleness, with all humility and gentleness. Perhaps another way to translate this is that of meekness. You heard that right. It was with an M, as in mom or ma. M with his meekness. I didn't say weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Emphatically not. The world sees meekness as weakness. We see meekness as actually great strength that's, in, that's under control. So gentleness, we can say, or meekness, is humility applied. It's when humility gets applied to dealing with others. And it's manifested in attitudes, in words, and in actions. The opposite of meekness, or opposite of gentleness, is that of harshness, or outrage, of shaming, of cruelty. That all these things are the opposite of what gentleness and meekness are. Gentleness and meekness necessarily results in kindness in words and actions, and then a mildness in temperament. Here, 
I'm reminded about how in gentleness and in meekness there is a perception about the effect that you and I have on others. In James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The effect, the effect that you have on others, I want you to see here, is the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. <clears throat> part of gentleness <coughs> part of gentleness is that we come to realize that having a strong effect on someone else is not what's important pride doesn't really care about the heart or motives pride is impatient and it demands results it seeks for immediate change it is short sighted in its ways immediate change without the right motive is called long term failure I'll give you a simple example. <clears throat> what is better? That you would have someone walk with you a mile, but to do so willingly. Or for them to walk with you two miles, but do it grudgingly. You realize that your, your capital will eventually run dry if people who help you or serve you do so grudgingly. It's very simple. You think about the way things work in a marriage. In a marriage, it can never be the goal simply of conformity, simply of giving in. Because if, if you want your spouse to do something, and if they do it, but they do it grudgingly, well, there's capital that's lost. And, and as, as your relationship goes on, you, you think about how each time they're doing something outwardly that they don't agree with or they don't like, then they're going to be more resentful. The end result is bad, is failure. We think about how gentleness reminds us about how God has dealt with us. Romans 2, verse 4, speaks about how God in his kindness, in his patience, in his love, that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not the thought about, you know what, God's got this finger of a lightning bolt and he's going to strike us dead at a moment's notice. That causes us to say, you know what, I'm going to turn to this God because he has offered us good things. Rather, it's his kindness that turns us to him. We have also patience. Patience or long-suffering is humility when it encounters opposition, delay, injustice, tragedy, etc. It's when humility comes upon opposition. When there is a reason for delay. Proverbs twelve sixteen, A fool's anger is known at once, but a prudent man conceals dishonor. Meaning that if a fool is upset, he immediately will display it to others. He desires to see how others will change from it. The, the book of James in chapter 1, he writes about endurance. This is very similar to patience. It's bearing up under a heavy load when things don't go your way in life. Perhaps we can say, when things don't go your way in life, that's when you really start to learn what's inside of you. That's when you really know what, what you're made of. That, that's what comes out, right? 
Here we think about patience and how God calls us to patience. I ask you, people of God, regarding patience, things don't go your way, whatever that might be, how quickly do you go grumbling or complaining or slandering? Or rather, perhaps a better question, how quickly do you go to prayer? You realize that ultimately you cannot change people because you can't ultimately change yourself, right? Here, you realize that instead of grumbling and complaining and slandering, instead we should be going to our God in prayer who changes the hearts of men, including our own. Patience is coming to realize that God is the one who changes the hearts of men. Here also we have the forbearance in love. The worldly way is that anything not done my way or to my liking will result in a complaint to management. To hold a grudge is to disobey the Lord, and it is the opposite of forbearance in love. And so I ask you, people of God, are you one who tends to hold grudges against people easily and for long periods of time? You think about how 10 years, 20 years, 50 years pass. Do you still remember that one person who never gave you your casserole dish back? I mean, if that's such a big deal, why don't you say, uh, I think I, I think you have a casserole dish of mine. I do? Oh yeah, I'd like it back. Okay, here it is, right? I mean, <laughs> instead of holding a grudge, maybe you should just mention it. And you think about love. There's that one song, what's love got to do with it? Well, forbearance and love, right? Bearing another, bearing with one another in love. Love has everything to do with it. <clears throat> We're told, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffer. It bears all things. It endures all things. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. But perhaps some of you are asking the question, well, what do you do then when your love can no longer cover these sins? Well, God gives us, God gives us instructions about that. How often have you seen or heard about this? When someone is part of a church, whether for a month, a year, for 50 years, and something goes wrong <clears throat> with someone else within the church. There was a misunderstanding or, or there's genuinely sin. And what do those people tend to do? They tend to leave. And you talk to the elders, the pastors of the church, and they find out about this, and they ask the simple question, well, wait a minute, why not address this with the person? instead of just leaving. Well, that seems to be like the hardest thing to do. It's like, it's like pushing a thousand pound ball up a hill, right? It's, they'd rather die than to do that, right? Especially if it were some, over some mere misunderstanding, right? you know, to think that the church 
has people who have not yet arrived. I mean, they're still sinners because the church is yet imperfect. What kind of thought is that? How, how inferior of a thinking we have? Well, of course not, right? Of course, the, the church, until Jesus returns, that we're glorified, we're still sinners. And part of, part of learning to get along with one another is that there is wisdom. There's growth in addressing these matters. Here, how many churches are around where if something comes up, right, you go, go to a different church, right? This is foregoing opportunities in which we can grow in our sanctification together. Here we think about how the truth of this passage applies to us. You think about the hope in the gospel, that our Lord Jesus is one who is perfect in humility, he's perfect in patience, he's perfect in gentleness and in bearing with one another in love. That he bore our sins upon the cross. You have an example that that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. We ask, are we humbling ourselves enough? Well, the answer must be, no, not enough. Because Jesus did it unto death, even death of the shameful death on the cross. Here, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on behalf of sinners. That he was not ashamed to call us brothers. That he willingly identified with sinners. And that in him, you and I have the true hope for forgiveness and eternal life. Here we think also about where the church would be without humility, without gentleness, without patience, without forbearance and love? The answer is, the church would be just like the world. There would be no witness. There would be no difference. Is it ever the case that you might feel wronged in your life in the church? Well, sin has a way of creeping in. But you realize how you deal with it is part of the testimony to the world. The world can easily say, I would never let anyone get away with treating me like that. Part of your witness, part of your testimony is, you know what, someone has treated me like that, but I'm not giving up on the church because I realize that I am far from perfect and so is the church, and this is how we grow. Really? You're going to continue being part of that body? Hey, you missed out on the best part. That's called reconciliation. That's called Christian growth. Here, we think also about relationships in your life. You realize that part of the sanctification process is that we are with people, we are around people. There's no, there's no secret that it's difficult to be around people. It's easy to just hide away in our lives. But perhaps you've seen within the last two or three years in this pandemic period that it gets rather lonely. And you think about people who are not around others, they they see that there's actually a need for something called a community, a.k.a. the church. That when you and I are growing in humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and love, this is when friendships are restored. Friendships begin to thrive. Here we think about marriages. It consists of mutual edification. It consists of pointing one another to our Lord Jesus Christ 
consists of drawing out the best of one another. It's easy when relationships are soured by sins, even in a marriage where people give up. But you realize the Lord Jesus is one who meets us where we are. He brings true hope when sin only offers hopelessness. How often is you see, do you see it when you meet people and they're so far from where they need to be? But whether it be a month later, a year later, 10 years later, that you see there's a newfound hope in their relationship. This is true about friendships. This is true about relationships in the church. It's true about marriages. It's true about family relationships. Think also, for a moment, we take a step back. What are those things that move you against these traits of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance and love? Meaning, the things in life, the subjects that move you toward pride and harshness, impatience, and bearing grudges. I warn you, those things are actually the idols of your heart. Whether they be your own comfort, your own ease, your own laziness, whether it be your desire for fame, for praise of men, for wealth, anytime those things get disturbed, you'll realize that they bring out the worst in us. You think about what Jesus calls us to. These are the things he is the one who should move us to humility, to gentleness, to patience, and to forbearance and love. His motivation, who he is, and what he has done for us. If that's not enough, then nothing will be. That his promise to us is always sure. He promises that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, 